0: Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 9 and reading verses 19 through the end of the chapter. And I, again, invite you to turn there and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed, and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame." And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. It is providential that on this Reformation Sunday, we come to this passage in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans For it is here that we find a clear line of demarcation between theological understandings of what God has done in the salvation of mankind. This significant difference of understanding does not center on ordination or baptism or the Lord's Supper. It is not centered on universalism or the existence of hell or the timing of Christ's return. It is a difference of understanding that is as old as man himself, but which found a new name sometime around AD 400. At that time, St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, authored a book that we know as The Confessions of St. Augustine. And in chapter 10 of that book, in section 29, Augustine wrote this brief prayer to God. Give what thou enjoinest, and enjoin what thou wilt. Now to translate that another way, Grant what you command, and command what you do desire. And in this, Augustine was acknowledging our full dependence upon the sovereign grace of God. The story is told, however, that a contemporary British theologian by the name of Pelagius took great offense at this confession of Augustine's, and he argued that God would never give a command to man unless man had the capacity to obey it. He argued that Adam's fall was Adam's fall, but that all the children of Adam were not sinful from the moment of their conception, but were like Adam when he was first created. Pelagius had evidently never read Romans chapter 5, which I know you all know quite well by now. Thankfully, he was soon declared to be a heretic by Rome, and his doctrine and its sub have all been dispelled as heresy, But the seed of this heresy has continued to mislead Christians of all denominational stripes into believing that they are active contributors to their salvation. The Swiss theologian Roger Nicole once observed that we are by nature Pelagian. We assume that we have the power to incline our hearts to Christ while we are yet in the flesh. And because of that, we have a built-in resistance to the notion that our salvation is all of God and nothing of us. We bristle at the full implications of sola gratia, saved by grace alone. And yet, if one reads the Scriptures from beginning to end, one is hard-pressed to find any solid evidence that points to the idea that we human beings are capable of offering anything to God that would in any way influence God to save us. On the heels of Adam and Eve's departure from the way of the Lord, we find Cain slaying his brother Abel, and the race towards complete annihilation is on such that by the time of Noah and the flood, God declares that the thoughts of man are evil continually. And even after that reset, by the time of Abraham, cities like Sodom and Gomorrah had grown so thoroughly wicked that God's judgment fell upon them to keep evil from spreading. And though Abraham lobbies God for sparing them, lest the innocent be killed along with the wicked. He discovers that God is willing to extend mercy to the wicked for the sake of the righteous, but he learns that there are not even ten righteous people in the entire population of those twin cities. Only Lot and Lot's wife and his two daughters are graciously spared And then Lot's wife is lost as her heart betrays her and she longs for what lies behind. And story after story after story points not to the basic goodness of mankind as Pelagius would have us believe, as our own culture would have you believe, but instead points to the innate sinful condition that resides in every man, woman, and child such that God declares through the prophet Isaiah that all we like sheep have gone astray and there is none that is righteous, no, not one. And it is this total depravity of mankind that disables us from seeing clearly our true spiritual condition. Dr. John Gerstner once spoke on the topic of the total depravity of man, and during his presentation, he sought to underscore the wretchedness of we human beings, and he made the comment, man is a rat. Very clear. And during the Q&A that followed, there was a fellow who came to the microphone, and he was incensed over Dr. Gerstner's portrayal of humanity, which was, in his mind, still the crowning achievement of God's good creation. And he insisted that Dr. Gerstner apologize for his disparaging remarks. So Dr. Gerstner came to the podium to answer the man, and he said something like this The gentleman who was so offended is quite right. I did speak harshly. I'm not sure what I was thinking. So allow me to offer my apologies to the rats because the rats only behave the way that they do because they have been subjected to this fallen world not by their own choice but because of the choice of man and you see it is this heretical view that we human beings were not affected by the fall at all which is full blown pelagianism or that we were only partially affected by the fall which is semi pelagianism a subvariant that leads to the notion that our salvation relies in some part upon us. Not surprisingly then, there are many in the visible church today who will argue vociferously for the position that we must do something before God will save us. Now that argument might seek to minimize what it is that we must do, but regardless of how small these proponents want to make our contribution, that tiny contribution then rests upon the notion that there is something in us that is capable of making the offering. It is to argue that there is something that has not fallen completely and totally, that there is something in us that is still redemptive. And psychologically, whether those who make this argument are cognizant of it or not, it is that little bit of righteousness to which they cling that makes their hope of salvation rest upon something other than the complete grace of God. Sola gratia. Now, the Apostle Paul in this ninth chapter of Romans annihilates that understanding and that theological view. His argument here is that God chooses... To have mercy upon whom He chooses. To have mercy uh, and compassion upon those whom He chooses. To have compassion. In regard to our salvation, as Paul said in verse 16, which we examined last time, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now I will be the first one to admit that the doctrine of God's sovereign election is one that takes some time to to absorb and to process and to understand, but it is essential that we do so. For our failure to rightly comprehend this puts us, as Sinclair Ferguson likes to phrase it, at the wrong end of the telescope, such that our vision of the plan and the purpose and the decree of God is completely skewed and out of all proportion to the spiritual reality of things. And as a result, we find it impossible then to bow the knee willingly and unreservedly before God's sovereign authority. Paul's treatment of God's election here is as clear a presentation as we could expect. His review of God's covenantal dealings with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob helps us understand that the initiative as well as the whole of salvation always rests with God and that it has absolutely nothing to do with us. Abraham was a pagan in Haran, worshiping idols when God chose him and called him. Isaac's very existence was a total impossibility as far as his aged parents were concerned. If it had not been for God opening the barren womb of a woman who was 90 years old, Isaac would never have been. And though Jacob and Esau were twins, born of the same mother, God chose the elder to serve the younger before they were ever born. Before, as Paul puts it here, they were even capable of doing good or evil before they were ever capable of choosing anything at all, let alone choosing to follow God. And we find evidence of God's election running through the pages of Scripture repeatedly such that when the very Son of God walks the face of the earth, He says to His disciples, You did not choose Me, but I chose you. Now He says to the crowd one day, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. Now there is a church growth ad campaign that will really pack the house, said no one ever. And then Jesus goes on to say to them, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And to emphasize it even more, he repeats, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. We should not be surprised, I suppose, then with the concluding line in John's Gospel after that episode, for he says after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The notion that our salvation is fully of God and nothing of us offends the Pelagian spirit resident in us. We want to believe that there is something in us that is not completely lost, some small niche of righteousness tucked away in a remote part of our body or mind or soul that would cause God to send His Son to rescue us. But that notion does not come from the pages of Scripture. It's not found in the written Word of God. That comes from the Father of Lies. And we would be wise to rid ourselves of it. As I said before, it's not new. It's not original with us. It's not original with the British heretic Pelagius to whom it is attributed. It is as old as fallen man. But its pervasiveness in the minds of those who occupy pews in churches around the world today is detrimental to the spread of the gospel that was preached by the first apostles and reclaimed by the reformers of the 16th century. And if we desire spiritual reformation in our own time and in our own lives, then it must begin with our repentance over the notion that we are saved by anything other than the gracious mercy of God extended to those who deserve nothing of it. Paul is aware that the notion that God chooses some, but not all, will raise objections. As we discussed last week, the first objection is that there's some injustice on God's part when he extends grace and mercy to some, but not to all. And in answer to that, we underscored the point that it is foolish and dangerous to accuse God of being unjust, for God is incapable of being unjust. God is perfectly and infinitely just, as well as perfectly and infinitely holy and perfectly and infinitely righteous. Anyone attempting to take God to task on this issue might believe they're going to browbeat God into saving all when in fact they're simply insisting that God give everyone what they justly deserve. And their unwitting demand is to insist that God send everyone to eternal perdition. You see, in the face of Adam's rebellion, God's issue was not how do I deal with them justly. The issue was how do I save any of them and remain just. Friends, God is not unjust in saving some but passing over others any more than a governor who decides to pardon one convicted killer on death row, but not all the convicts on death row, The fact that the governor exercises his authority and for reasons that are entirely his own, he chooses to be merciful to one, does not mean that he is unjust if he allows all others on death row to suffer the consequences for their crimes. But this is not the only objection that is rattling around in the minds of those who live in resistance to God. Paul says, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? You will remember that earlier in this chapter, Paul used Pharaoh of Egypt to illustrate the point that there are times when God will harden the heart of some for purposes that are entirely his own. But there are those who see this as unjust, and they raise the issue of the final judgment. If in hardening the heart of someone like Pharaoh, it serves to bring God glory, then how can God turn around on judgment day and declare that person guilty? The defense would seem to be, you, O God, are responsible for my actions, for me being the way I am. For how can a mere mortal resist your will? But you see that, Defense presumes, along with Pelagius, that all men enter this world innocent. But that's not true, is it? The psalmist reminds us that we were brought forth in iniquity. We were conceived in sin. And as Paul has already said in Romans chapter 5, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And by the one man's disobedience, the many... We're made sinners. God is not responsible for our sinfulness or for our rejection of the gospel. We are. The first thing that Paul does in the face of this last objection is to scold the one who entertains such a notion by reminding him that he's a mere man. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God or to call God to task? Now, this is part of the issue for anyone who lives in resistance to God. They have forgotten who they are while they deny that God is who he is. They exalt themselves while simultaneously minimizing the stature and authority of Almighty God. And so Paul reminds anyone who dares to pose this objection that it's out of order. Who are you, O man? Rhetorical question, obvious answer, you're the creature. God's your creator. And Paul recognizes that God requires no defense. God, Paul does not need to explain the actions of God to anyone, nor do you. God is perfectly within his rights to do what he desires with us, just as a potter has the right to do whatever he chooses with a lump of clay. And while the potter may use some of the clay for what we deem to be an honorable use and other clay for dishonorable use, the potter alone understands his overarching plans in ways that the individual pieces do not. And let us not forget that the clay we are speaking of here is all sinful. Paul is not saying that God creates some to be righteous and some to be sinful. He is saying that the whole lump is sinful and God is free to use the clay according to the counsel of His own will. God is not predestinating some to hell. That's already the destination for all unless God intervenes and saves some. So when Paul points to Pharaoh, who at the time he reigned in Egypt was considered by some to be the incarnation of the sun god Ra, God chose to do what He would With Pharaoh. God sent his messenger Moses and demanded that Pharaoh release this ragtag nation known as the Habiru that Pharaoh held in captivity. And Pharaoh resisted that call to freedom and he said no. And the Bible says that he hardened his heart and he refused to let them go. God sends a plague. Pharaoh blinks. He told Moses that they could go. But then, as happens so often with us human beings, once the trouble passed, Pharaoh reverted to his natural state, which was one of rebellion. And he hardened his heart, and he refused to let them go. Again, let my people go. No, God sends a plague. Pharaoh blinks. You may go. Trouble passes. Heart is hardened. You may not go. Again, let my people go. No, God sends a plague. Pharaoh blinks. Trouble passes. Heart is hardened. You may not go. And again and again, seven times. And we often make much of the fact that the Scriptures point then to, to Pharaoh hardening his heart And then taking note of how the one who does the hardening shifts from being Pharaoh hardening his heart to God being the one who hardens his heart. But I want to suggest to you that what is noteworthy here is not that God was then well within his rights to use Pharaoh for his own glory. What is noteworthy is that God chose to contend with the rebellious clay for even one nanosecond. God was gracious towards Pharaoh such that the opportunity to repent was offered on more than one occasion. And yet with each proclamation from the Lord God, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart grew worse and worse. Did you ever consider that the proclamation of the word of God works faith and life in some, but in others it causes them to rebel all the more? Some hear the Word of God clearly proclaimed and their response is to fall on their face before God's throne in repentance and to submit to His authority while others shake their fist in God's face and declare no. Why is that? Is it because one is more wise or intelligent or gifted or clever than the other? No. If you think that, you have heard nothing of what Paul is saying. It's nothing of us. The reason that some respond in faith and others do not is because of God, who irresistibly calls those whom He foreknew before the foundation of the world. Do you see now why Jesus says so often, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, no was the response of the majority of Paul's kinsmen. The very ones upon whom God shed so much mercy and so much grace, and yet in light of all that revelation from God, they still chose to crucify the very Son of God. And this is what leads Paul to conclude that not all the biological descendants of Israel are the true Israel. Not all of those who were partakers of the covenants and the giving of the law and the sacred worship and all the promises of the Lord were among the elect. Their response was to pursue a righteousness that had nothing to do with faith. Remember, the righteous shall live by faith. But rather it had to do with that Pelagian attitude that says, I can attain a righteousness on my own through my own will and by my own exertion that God will have to accept. But their pursuit of a self-righteousness caused them to reject the Christ and that opened the door for the Gentiles. All according to the design of the righteous and just potter. Is all this difficult to get one's mind around? It can be. God's plan in Christ is a lofty plan. It's a divine and eternal plan. It brings glory to the Godhead alone. Paul cites Isaiah 8.14, And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we see that all unfolding in the time of Paul. But people of all tribes and tongues and nations stumble over Christ and God's plan in Him. The fact that this causes us to stumble should not dissuade us from trying to understand and to comprehend it. What we should not do is rebel against it, for we do so at our peril. I once heard the story of James Denny, a Scottish theologian and professor who after giving a lecture was immediately approached by an impudent young man who said to him with some level of impatience and superiority in his voice Dr Denny there were some things in that lecture of yours today about the divine purpose and the divine sovereignty that i did not understand and dr denny paused And he looked this young fellow over very carefully. And then he said to him very quietly. Young man. Since that lecture was about almighty God. And since you are one of his very young and very small creatures. I am not surprised that there were some things that you did not understand. Beloved, let us not presume to understand these things better than the Apostle. Let us not presume to understand better than the Christ. Let us not presume to understand better than the Lord God. Rather, let us with all humility bow before His throne of grace and offer to Him our gratitude for having mercy on any at all. Let us receive by faith alone the proffered gift of grace in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me in prayer today.